You have tuned in to the voice of the narrated Puritan audiobook podcast. It is my intention to talk a little bit about what is going on in here in Kentucky at Asbury College or University and a revival that has taken place this week, if in fact it is a revival. I guess I come from a little bit different angle than two sides of this issue. One is they receive wholeheartedly and thankfully everything that is going on there. And you have the other side that doesn't really believe in revival at all. I read the article by R. Scott Clark, and it's the same type of thing with Herman Hankel. Because of the covenant-nurturing model of rearing children, child conversions are not well received in their circles because they believe that the normal way, as they call it, the ordinary means of grace is that children are converted, being nurtured into a covenant family. Coming from this position as a student of the historic revivals that have taken place in America and England and other places, as this subject has of interest to me, going all the way back to 1984 when I bought my first Jonathan Edwards book, The Three Works that they put together on revival, distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God, a narrative of many surprising conversions in Northampton, and thoughts on the present revival of religion, which all three I have narrated, in fact, more than once. And so Jonathan Edwards, people like William Sprague, people that have written on revival like Heman Humphrey, and so on are really the guides that I've used in the past. And I want to show that there are some things that are going on in this revival that do not line up with the historic nature of the revivals that are accepted or were accepted in a bygone day. We start with a quick quote from an evangelist who visited the revival who wrote, Attending the revival at Asbury was an unforgettable experience. We could literally feel the weighty presence of God as soon as we walked into the building. Well, he's talking about the manifest presence of God upon an assembly of believers. But what he feels and what was felt in a bygone day are the two things that we want to compare. He said, sensing God's presence in that way and knowing that this was an unplanned service that had continued since Wednesday morning, I got emotional within the first few minutes of being there. There was a passionate, authentic worship, brokenness, people praying at the altar, people praying at their seats, and people praying with each other in groups around the room. What you don't find in these descriptions that you typically would find in a real revival of religion is that when the manifest presence of God comes upon an assembly in all genuine revivals, and you may have heard of this if you've heard anything of the history of what happened in Enfield, Connecticut, July 8th, 1741, when Jonathan Edwards preached, sinners in the hands of an angry God, the anguish and the groans and the outcries from the congregation, in the manifest presence of God, because God is holy, when he comes in his manifest presence, to an unbeliever, that person is going to get a foretaste of what it will feel like to be standing before God unreconciled on the judgment day. There's not going to be any feeling of love to God and want to be lost in joy and praising. To an unbeliever, he's going to feel a sense of dread, a sense of absolute fear. You say, 
How do we know that's scriptural? Because if you read the original language in Acts 2, when it said that the men who heard Peter's sermon were pricked in the heart, the Greek brings out that they were in a real great anguish, as if their heart was being sawn asunder. They were in a state of dread. I think it is helpful to give a number of historic accounts of what they actually felt, and I think it's important, because the Asbury School is here in Kentucky, to talk about what was recorded in the Kentucky Revival of 1800, which was Logan County, 90 miles from where I sit. I have been down there and checked the scene over, but this is from a book called The Great Revival of 1800 by a man named William Spear. This is what he says. The Monday evening was peculiarly and awfully solemn. Some hundreds were bowed down and silently weeping, and a few crying out in anguish of soul. After the solemn dismission of the assembly, most of the people remained on the ground. The scene was very remarkable. The pious were generally joyful and lively, sinners greatly alarmed, and many deeply distressed. The people unwilling to part did not leave the place till an hour or more in the night, and they parted with an appointment to meet there again the next morning. Later on, he says, on Thursday following, which was observed as a fast in preparation for the Lord's Supper, the impression still increased. Society was appointed in the evening. A considerable number attended, and before worship began, two young persons who had retired to the woods to pray fell to the ground, unable to bear up any longer under the distressing anguish of a wounded spirit. Their cries for mercy were very affecting. After some time, two persons went to them and inquired the cause of their distress. Their reply was that they were exposed to the wrath of God. When Christ was proposed to them as a remedy, their reply was that their hearts were at enmity against God, and they could not accept of him although they were sure they would be damned without an interest in him. Besides, they had so long rejected salvation, they were now afraid God would have no mercy on them. Most of the time from that until Saturday at one o'clock was spent in conversing with the distressed. The general complaint was a sense of guilt, especially in rejecting Christ, hardness of heart and inability to help themselves, and all acknowledged the justice of God in their condemnation. As yet, there were no instances of deliverance. In another account in the revival of 1859 in Ireland, this is taken from a book called Authentic Records of Revival Now in Progress in England, 1860, William Reed. This is a report of a man named Adam McGill and what happened in his congregation in Boviva, Ireland. On the 11th of June, 1859, at a prayer meeting at Glen Conway Schoolhouse, the Lord made bare his holy arm in the sight of all the people. A young convert from County Antrim addressed the meeting earnestly and solemnly on what the Lord had done for his soul. The people listened with deep attention. Tears stole down many a cheek. Hearts pent up with silent grief are ready to burst. At the close, six persons were plunged into the most heart rending anguish I ever witnessed. The cry of all was to the same effect. Oh, my sins, my sins, I am going to hell. Jesus, have mercy on me. One cried, Lord Jesus, have mercy on my wicked father and mother. 
two young men shed tears bitterly, and with the arrow of the Lord in their souls they went from the meeting to a graveyard, and there spent all night in wrestling with the Lord for pardon. They are now candidates for the ministry. The following day, June 12th, was a Sabbath, a day which will never be forgotten by many in this parish. Oh, with what power and majesty Jehovah walked amongst us. Zechariah 12.10 was wonderfully fulfilled to us. When the usual time for public worship came, the church was so crowded that we were obliged to retire to the churchyard and conduct the services in the open air. The crowd became immense. The minister and congregation of Scriggan Heaven joined us in a more solemn assembly never met on earth. During the service, the tears and suppressed sobs of many showed that it was no ordinary occasion, that it was a day of God's power, that the spirit of power was dealing personally with men's souls. With a benediction pronounced, a few retired, but the great majority lingered, stood in fact as if held in a vice or bound with a chain, and in a moment, as if struck with a thunderbolt, about a hundred persons were prostrated on their knees, sending forth a wail from heart, bruised, broken, and overwhelmed with horror, such as never will be forgotten, and which perhaps for solemnity and awe will never be surpassed until the judgment day. Oh, what must the willings of the lost in hell be when the discovery is made that their lamps are gone out? that the day of mercy is past and the door of hope shut forever. For hours these stricken, smitten, bleeding souls remained on their bended knees, unconscious of everything but their own guilt and danger, in need of a Savior, pleading and praying with an intensity and fervor which surpasses all description. The evening of Wednesday, June 15th, was appointed for prayer, and long before the hour for commencing the service, the church was crowded. The awful sadness in every countenance bespoke the deep earnestness within. Even the most ungodly were overawed and wore a solemn sadness on their faces. Had a pestilence swept over the neighborhood, leaving one dead in every house, greater awe would not have been produced. At the close of the services, several efforts were made to dismiss the congregation, but without avail. And it was not until four o'clock in the morning that people could be persuaded to go home. Multitudes were again on that night steeped in awful sorrow and stung with the most poignant remorse for sin. Such unutterable horror overwhelmed one young man that the blood streamed from his mouth and nose. Another man who all of his life was a profligate had such a vivid view of the horrors of hell and the pains of hell took such hold of him that he cried like a demoniac that a hundred devils were dragging him to the bottomless pit. Now, whatever you think of this, you have to admit, unless this is a fiction, that the manifest presence of God in these two revivals were vastly different than the reports that you were getting from Asbury University in Kentucky. The next thing that seems to be missing in the Asbury revival, unless I have missed it, is there really isn't a lot of emphasis on the preaching of the Word of God. And I want to compare that to an account this book is called Accounts of Religious Revivals in Many Parts of the United States from 1815 to 1818. Joshua Bradley, Albany, New York, published in 1819. This account is from Ackworth, New Hampshire. Quote, Nothing has appeared like a revival in this town until 1814. In this year, the Reverend P. Cook 
was ordained. At the first communion after his consecration, 16 offered themselves to the church. Immediately after this, instances of individual conviction made their appearance in different parts of the society, and one and another were made to rejoice in God. A solemn and strict attention was paid to the word preached. And the good work progressed gradually until September of 1816, in which time about 60 were added to the church. Now here's the part I want to emphasize. Every seat in the house of God was filled, not with drowsy and attentive hearers, but with awakened immortals hanging on the lips of the speaker with almost breathless attention, looking as if their everlasting all listen, depended upon the proper improvement of a single sermon. Neither were the people satisfied with attending merely on the duties of the sanctuary. Another concern about the Asbury revival that I am not finding in the accounts given, and that is, in the group of college students and even the visitors, those who come in with profession of being Christians, their profession never turns out to be false. In every case, their profession is always genuine and all they need is renewal and repentance and some reformation. In all historic accounts I've ever read of revival at any length, many of the people who have a profession have found during the revival that their profession is false and they were building their house on the sand and weren't, in fact, Christians, but hypocrites. To make my point here, I'm quoting from a book called The Log College by Archibald Alexander, biographical sketches of the founders of the Log College and the Great Awakening, and introducing you to Gilbert Tennant, a contemporary of George Whitfield. First, to introduce him, upon their arrival at New York, George Whitfield goes on to say, quote, I went to the meeting house to hear Mr. Gilbert Tennant preach, and never before heard I such a searching sermon. He went to the bottom indeed and did not daub with untempered mortar. He convinced me more and more that we can preach the gospel of Christ no further than we have experienced the power of it on our own hearts. Being deeply convicted of sin and being from time to time driven from his false bottom in dependency by God's Holy Spirit at his first conversion, he has learned experimentally to dissect the heart of the natural man. Hypocrites must either be converted or enraged at his preaching. He is a son of thunder and does not regard the face of man. He is deeply sensible of the deadness and formality of the Christian church in these parts and has given noble testimonies against it, end quote. Thomas Prince was a minister in Boston, and he comprised the history of revival in a set of magazines called The Christian History. Thomas Prince goes to hear Gilbert Tennant preach, but the emphasis I want you to understand is that some people who were listening to him discovered to their dismay that they were not in fact born-again Christians, but hypocrites. And this is what he says. The Reverend Mr. Prince, a pious and learned minister of Boston, speaks of Mr. Tennant in the following terms, quote, In private conversation, I found him to be a man of considerable parts and learning, free, gentle and condescending, 
from his own various experience, his reading the most eminent writers on experimental divinity as well as the scriptures, and from his conversing with many who had been awakened by his ministry in New Jersey, he seemed to have as deep an acquaintance with the experimental part of religion as any I have conversed with. And his preaching was as searching and rousing as ever I heard. He seemed to have such a lively view of the divine majesty, of the spirituality, purity, extensiveness, and strictness of the moral law, with its glorious holiness and displeasure at sin, his justice, truth, and power in punishing the damned, that the very terrors of God seemed to rise in his mind afresh when he displayed and brandished them in the eyes of unreconciled sinners. And the same writer speaks of his remarkable discrimination and skill in detecting hypocrites, quote, and laying open their many vain and secret refuges, counterfeit resemblances, their delusive hopes, their utter impotence and impending danger of destruction, end quote. The next thing that's made a lot of in this so-called revival in Asbury University is a range of Christian emotions, as they are called, that these subjects of this revival are displaying, but emotions may or may not be Christian, which Jonathan Edwards deals with in his book called A Treatise on the Religious Affections. And if you replace his word affection for emotion, you get the idea. And he, first part of the book is a number of signs that neither prove nor disprove that an emotion is from Christian affection or from a new disposition aided by the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says, showing what are no certain signs that religious affections are gracious or that they are not. One, that religious affections or emotions are very great or raised very high is no sign. Two, that they have great effects on the body is no sign. Three, that they cause those who have them to be fluent, fervent, and abundant in talking of the things of religion is no sign. The persons did not excite them of their own contrivance and by their own strength is no sign, and on and on. So these in and of themselves are not a sign of revival. It goes on to say that they much dispose persons with their mouths to praise and glorify God is no sign. That they make persons that have them exceeding confident of what they experience is divine, and that they are in a good state is no sign. And if you want that enlarged, I have narrated this book. It's on Sermon Audio. Others have narrated it, or you can read it for free. I'm sure you can find the text of this online. There's more I want to cover about this, but then you ask, well, how do we explain what's going on? Uh, Is it natural or is it spiritual? I'm saying it isn't one or the other. I am saying that it could be natural. And there is in the discussions of Robert Louis Dabney, Volume 3, an amazing article called Spurious Religious Excitements, which I have narrated and it is on my site. He talks about the effect of sympathy. When we see somebody wailing out in a crowd, we have a sympathetic reaction. Well, that can also happen in a religious meeting. When somebody cries out in a congregation, people can be affected by mere sympathy. But that's not the same as being affected by the Spirit or feeling conviction of sin. Ebony writes, People are ever prone to think that they are feeling religiously because they have feelings around them 
about religion. Their sensibilities have been aroused in connection with death and eternity, for example. So as these are religious topics, they suppose they are growing quite religious. The simplest way to clear away these perilous illusions is to ask, what emotions connected with religious topics as their occasions are natural to the carnal man or a person who's never been born again? These may be said to be first the emotions of taste or the mental aesthetic, second the involuntary moral emotion of self-blame or remorse, third the natural self-interested emotions of fear and hope, and desire of future security and enjoyment, and fourth, the emotion of instinctive sympathy. Ebony is writing at the end of the ministry of Charles Finney, and he writes, The result of these, quote, revivals are usually announced at once with overweening confidence as works of God's Spirit. In other words, they say there were so many converts, there were so many people affected. A minister reports to his church paper that he has just shared in a glorious work at a given place in which the Holy Ghost was present with power and forty souls were born into the kingdom. Now the man of common sense will remember how confidently this same revivalist made similar reports last year, the year before and perhaps many years previously. He was each time equally confident that it was the Spirit's work But this man must know that in each previous case, time has already given stubborn refutation to his verdict upon the work. Four-fifths of those who, he was certain, were converted to God have already gone back to the world and declare that they were never converted at all. He also says, quote, Doubtless many ministers are unconsciously swayed by the natural love of excitement. This is the same instinct which leads schoolboys and clowns to run to witness a dogfight. Spaniards to the cockfight and the bullfight, sporting men to the pugilists' ring, and theater-goers to the comedy. This natural instinct prompts many an evangelist, without his being distinctly aware of it, to prefer the stirring scenes of the spurious revival to the sober, quiet, laborious work of religious teaching. But it is obvious that this motive is as unworthy as it is natural or carnal." Other work in this regard to examine what is in fact the fruits of revival is in the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God by Jonathan Edwards. Again, he has the negative signs of what may or may not be signs that there is a revival that is taking place. He says, What are no signs by which we are to judge of a work, and especially what are no evidences that a work is not from the Spirit of God? 1. Therefore, it is not reasonable to determine that a work is not from God's Holy Spirit because of the extraordinary degree in which the minds of persons are influenced. A work is not to be judged of by any effects on the bodies of men, such as tears, trembling, groans, Loud outcries, agonies of body, or the failing of bodily strength. He shows what are the distinguishing scripture evidences of a work of the Spirit of God. Number one, when the operation is such as to raise their esteem of that Jesus who was born of the Virgin and was crucified without the gates of Jerusalem, and seems more to confirm and establish their minds in the truth of what the gospel declares to us of his being the Son of God and the Savior of men. This is a sure sign that it is from the Spirit of God. Number two, when the spirit that is at work operates against the interests of Satan's kingdom, which lies in encouraging and establishing sin and cherishing men's worldly lusts, this is a sure sign that it is a true and not a false spirit. 
Number three, that spirit operates in such a manner as to cause in men a greater regard to the Holy Scriptures, which is a concern also that I have about the Asbury revival, is all people are brought in indiscriminately without any regard to their denominational leanings, which, mark my word, that means that Catholics are as welcome as anybody to the party. Well, this is a shorter introduction, just the very basics. I want to get into more detail of what real solid revival in a bygone day looked like in the next podcast thank you for tuning in